Amen. Praise God. How you guys doing? Yes. Uh, love you guys. I'm excited for tonight. Um, we, uh, we really do want you guys to do life with us. Uh, we, we would love, man, if, like Connor said, if you walked in late, if you're new or if you're just coming but you're not really, you don't feel connected, you don't feel known and you want that, we, we want that for you, man. We, that really is our heart behind this. So you might not have listened to anything Connor said because he was holding a cute baby. Like me, I just was like, man, that baby's cute and I didn't hear anything he said. Uh, but man, just fill out a connect card and go talk to Carly at the info table uh, afterward and, and she'll get you plugged in. Um, all right. I'm excited about tonight, uh, a little nervous because it's not a popular thing to talk about, um, but I'm excited. I, I, I believe it's something that the Lord has put on my heart, on our heart uh, as leadership here at this, in this ministry to speak truth to you guys. We're going through a series uh, on the church. So last week was our first week in this, and, and what we did last week was we kind of talked about this idea that the church is God's design, or that God came up with the idea of the church that the church is God's design and therefore has a God-designed function and a God-designed purpose to it, right? So I brought Mason up on stage, if you were here last week, and Mason played a little ditty here on the keyboard that was angelic and beautiful and amazing, and it stirred everyone's affections because he's talented and he knows how to play uh, the, the piano or the keyboard. Uh, I do not. And so then we juxtaposed that with me trying to play the same thing, and it was awful and it was a train wreck because I don't know how to use this instrument. Technically, I was playing the piano, Right, I was hitting keys. It just didn't sound good. It wasn't producing the same thing that it was producing when Mason played it. And that's the image I want us to have for this whole series of this God-designed instrument, church. Right, this thing that God has built for a reason, for a purpose, for us also for his glory. Um, and for us for five weeks, for four more weeks now, to wrestle with, Lord, would we understand it? Would we grow in our ability to, to learn how it functions in our life? how it should function, how it should shape us, how it should motivate us, how it should bring you glory, in all of those ways. And so that's the, the big picture that we want to see, uh, that we see biblically um, happening and playing out all throughout scripture. Uh, that's why this series is so important to us. It's so important because we're talking to a room full of young adults who I don't, I don't want you guys to be 65 years old one day and look back and say, man, I missed something. Right? I missed a key component of how God designed me to function and live and operate and this, this key tool and this key instrument that he created through scripture. I missed how it functioned and because of that, I missed out in part of the sanctification that God was going to work out, trying to work out, this sovereign God who's in control and yet my lack of obedience, my lack of focus, my lack of knowledge to really step into utilizing the church the way God has designed. That's our heart. That's why this is so important. So we talked about that um, and then, and then we talked real briefly about kind of this one big uh, aspect that we briefly unpacked, and it's that the church is not a building or an event, right, but the church is a family. That the church, when we say that, is not this big building, this nonprofit organization. It's not, a, it's not an event. It's not a Wednesday night show. It's a family. That's what the biblical look at what, what the church is, and, and we unpacked Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is this verse where Peter professes Jesus Christ. He says, yes, Jesus is the savior. He is the one, he is the king. He submits his life, a profession of faith that then Jesus says, this is what I'm building my church on. It's the first time the word church shows up in the New Testament, if you remember that. First time we see that Greek word ecclesia show up and he says, that is the foundation of the church, that profession of faith. A profession of faith that eventually cost Peter his life, 
Most church historians believe Peter got crucified upside down at the end of his life because he said he wasn't worthy to die the same way as his Savior. And so that is, is what we have, is this idea that Peter said, yes, I'm submitting my life to you. You are the king. You are my authority. To, to the point of death, I'm surrendered to you. And that profession of faith is what the church is built on. And so those who have put their faith in Christ, we become a part of this family. We get adopted by the God of the universe. We become brothers and sisters, and it becomes this incredible family. And so that's what we looked at last week. Leading up to tonight and then the next three weeks, Josh is preaching a couple of them, what we're gonna do is we're going to look at the forgotten functions of the family. This isn't going to be an all-inclusive series on church. It's not going to go in depth to the ecclesiology we believe here, the study of church we believe here. We're just going to, we're just going to pick on four other key issues that we feel like, man, I don't know that we do this well. I think this is a forgotten function. I think this is an element of the church that we have lost sight of how it's supposed to work uh, biblically. So that's where we're going. Let's get after it. We're going to be in Colossians. I'm going to throw all the verses up on the screen. Well, I'm going to throw most of the verses up on the screen. Um, so if that's easier for you. But we're going to be in Colossians 3, verse 16. And then I'm going to just, for the next five minutes, I'm just going to drown you guys in Scripture. Um, it's really important to me, to us, that uh, it's not me up here giving my opinions on what I think the church is and what I feel the church should be and what my perspective. It's important for us in this ministry that we say, man, this, this is our authority. This, the word of God, this is our authority, and so we're going to unpack this. And so if I'm making a proposition, which I'm doing tonight, of a forgotten function, then it better be backed up with Scripture. So we're going to be all over the place. You might get lost. I'll give you my notes after the sermon if you, uh, if you want to double-check all my references. Colossians 3.16. This is what Paul says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Okay, so here's what Paul is doing with the Colossians in this verse. He is setting for them a framework of how he wants their fellowship and their family and their ecclesia, their gathering to function, right? He's, he's giving some defining things. And uh, I love that he talks about this idea of this, the way they worship, right? This, this whole concept of uh, they should be singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thanks. and I love that, and I love that it's a, it's a key component to what we do, obviously. Um, we, we just worshiped at the end of the sermon. We're gonna come back up here, and we're gonna worship through music some more, um, and if you're new, right, if you're not like this churchy person who grew up in the church, who like just kind of, this is old second nature to you, then honestly, I love that you're here. What, what's gonna happen is you're gonna be like, this is weird. You know why? Because it's weird. We do a lot of things in the church that's, wait, why do we do that? And a lot of times we lose sight of why we do those things. And so what we do is we gather, we're, we're commanded, hey, sing, remind ourselves. And so we're not just singing songs to make ourselves feel better because it's fun and because it's concert-like. We sing songs, for one, because we're commanded, and two, because it stirs our affections for God. But it stirs our affections for God. It, for me, it becomes prayer to pray, to keep repeating truth to me because I'm so, so quick to forget and so that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, hey, man, there's this component to it. But then, this is where, this is where we're going to camp out. This other aspect that he says. You see that right in the very beginning of verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he uses these two, two verbs, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonishing, right? This idea of reprimanding people, right? Firmly warning people uh, in all wisdom. There is going to be a theme that we're going to unpack where we're going to see a forgotten function of the church being our command to call each other out, 
That's where we're going. Our command to, call, to, to reprimand, to, to call out, to admonish each other. Look at the Old Testament, Proverbs. I'll throw it up on the screen. It's a couple of verses in Proverbs, chapter 12. The first verse in chapter 12, and then right in the middle. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Stupid, that Hebrew word means stupid. That's what that means. <laughs> verse 15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus comes to John. We preached an entire series on this about a year ago, and he starts calling out churches, and he identifies seven churches. He said, this church, hey, you're doing this good. I am going to admonish. I'm going to call out. I'm going to reprimand a blind spot that I see in you. In chapter 2, I'm just going to read this over you. In chapter 2, he calls out Ephesus. He says some nice things. Hey, you're great people. Awesome. Good job. And then in verse 4, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That, that phrase, but I have this against you. He says it again in chapter two, verse 14, when he's talking about Pergamum. He says, but I have a few things against you. Right, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who, who taught Balak, right? And so he starts calling them out. Seven churches he goes through. In chapter two, verse 20, he says, but I have this against you to Thyatira. In chapter three, to the church in Sardis, Jesus says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Right? There's, there's two whole chapters, seven churches that Jesus just addresses and says, I have this against you. I have, there's a blind spot. There's a blind spot. There's a blind spot. In, in wisdom literature, in Proverbs, and Psalms, there's a blind spot. Wisdom. Wisdom is asking. It's, it's seeking other perspective. All throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament prophets. Throw up the list of Old Testament prophets. This entire list of Old Testament prophets, these are all men, right, to make this point that the, that the huge theme of the church and the body of Christ is to call out. All of these books, these prophets, were people who went before the people of God. They went before the family of God. And each one of these books are, hey, I got to call you out on some stuff. There's some major blind spots, and those blind spots are going to cost you. They're going to cost you dearly. You're not going to be sanctified in the way you're supposed to. You're not going to be glorifying in the way. You're not functioning in the way you're supposed to. i got to call you out. Right? We've got prophet after prophet. In the New Testament, the entire, all of the epistles, all of the epistles, they are letters written to families of believers to say, hey, you got a blind spot. you got a blind spot. I love you, encouraging, stay strong, stay firm, but there is a really big blind spot in your life. Watch out for that. There is a culture Right? There's a culture within the family of God, within the church. There should be a culture where we crave, where we yearn, where we lean in to be spoken into, to say, hey, would you admonish me? Would you challenge me? Are there, are there things I need to be rebuked on? Are there blind spots in my life? And it is a theme throughout all of Scripture. Right? We could proof text it for the next hour and say, in this verse, in this verse, in this relationship, and Paul and Timothy and it's there. A forgotten function of the family of God is to speak hard truth to each other in love. That's, that's what I want us to walk away with tonight. A forgotten function of the family of God. One thing that I think now in our culture we don't do well. I don't do it well in my life. I am not good at this. And I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you how to get through that here in a little bit, but I am not good at it. And I think we are not strong in seeing part of the role of the church being a group of brothers and sisters that God designed to be in a relationship, to know me and for me to know you in a way 
where you call me out in love. I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. See those verbs? With complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul is warning Timothy. God is warning us, the church, this ministry, saying, pay attention. No part of the design of this thing is that you might be called out. The idea of calling each other out, right, from a Christian to another Christian, it should be fundamental to the role of the church in our lives, right? But somewhere along the way, we just neutered the church. Somewhere along the way, we have neutered the church in this way. We no longer want to receive that, right? We've become, we've become um, intolerant of other people calling us out. And we've, what we've done is we've reduced this idea of love to just grace. And that's what we call it. Something we talk about here a lot because it's something that can become real pervasive in our culture. But we've taken this idea of love, this balance of truth and grace, and we've so often just reduced it to just grace. And if we're loving people with just grace, which we're going to talk about is so, so, so important, but if we're loving people with only grace and we're never bringing up truth in their life, there's never a time where we're saying, hey, man, here's a lot of grace, but there's a dangerous direction you're heading into. Or there's something in your life that I think is going to rob you of joy in the long term. And if we're only loving them with grace, we're not loving them. We're just tolerating them. We're just tolerating them. That's not loving. If I treated my kids that way, my four-year-old, who right now, God, all he wants to do is watch the most creepy YouTube videos ever. <laughs> there is apparently an entire industry of creepy, and if you're one of these guys, I apologize. Talk to me afterwards. I'm going to rebuke you. But there is, a whole, there is a whole wave of men who do YouTube videos where they play with toys in front of a camera, right? And all it is is their hands and toys. And so it's these videos that have like millions of views, right? Millions of views. It's like a, it's a whole thing. They like sell advertising and they like then endorse the toys that they're playing with. And it'll be like some grown man with hairy hands. I don't ever see his face. He just opens up a box and starts pulling out toys and then playing with them and making noises and doing a train and having dinosaurs fight and all this stuff. And my son is addicted to them. And it is weird. It is really, really weird, right? He's like, I just want to watch dinosaur videos. And that's, well, he just wants to watch creepy men play with toys. And it's just, it, so my point being this, if Charlie, who's four right now, so it's weird, but it's kind of okay. If Charlie is a 28-year-old, right? And all he does is watch creepy guys with playing with toys. That's just, that's going to be bad, right? That's going to be really bad. At some point, I need to love my son enough to let him know that's not okay. That's not the real world. That's weird. Yeah, all those things. You get the idea, right? right? All he would want to do is eat candy, right? If I only let my son eat candy because that's what he would want, right? that'd be really gracious of me. But it wouldn't be loving because, hey, man, you can have candy and that's a treat, but that's not, that's not good for you long term. We have got to love people with truth and grace. And, and like I said, I feel like we've been neutered in that. We no longer want to accept that from brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so what should that look like, right? We see it in the New Testament. 
right? We see these families of, of God coming together, calling each other out. We see, we see Paul call out the apostle Peter in Galatians and Acts when Peter's kind of being a prima donna and playing favorites with the Jews, right? We see these godly men, these godly women call each other out in really, really loving ways. So what's that look like for us? The first thing that I'm, I'm gonna camp out on, and this is just a, a caveat. What we're talking about in this, right? When we're talking about this series on the church, we're talking about believers. We're talking about people who've made professions of faith and say, man, I wanna follow Christ with my life. I wanna follow Christ with my life. I wanna look more like Christ. I wanna submit my life to Christ. They've built their life on that, that profession of faith and then because of that, they've been adopted by the king of the universe and they are now in the family of God. That's what we're talking about speaking truth into. What we're not talking about, what I am not proposing, is that we all go find our, our atheist friends and say, hey, let me tell you about all the things that are wrong about your life or your lifestyle. Or we find people outside the church who don't submit their life to this and we call them out. I, it drives me crazy how much time we as believers spend time and energy and passion on picking on people outside of the church. Right? We are called to not judge the people outside of the church. Right? That's God. Right? Let, let God do that. Right? We're called to judge each other, and yet we don't judge each other. Right? Like I don't judge. In fact, half the time, if somebody just says they're a Christian, right? oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, then I just give them a pass. Right? We as a culture just say, oh, well, they're a Christian, so I'm just going to give them a pass over all of these major blind spots in their life. See our president. Right? Like, don't want to get super political, but oh, he's a Christian. And so because of that, well, then we aren't going to call him out on that. We're just going to show grace. That's crazy. And yet we'll pick on all these other people who aren't professing to be Christians. That's, that's crazy. We spend so much of our time doing that. And what does that say to the world? Right? Like, what does that communicate to the world? What, what kind of a family would we want to be a part of? And in the first place, that's not our desire. My desire for someone outside the church, outside of the body of Christ, who hasn't met Christ yet. And maybe that's you in this room. Praise God you're here. I want you to feel welcome. You know why I want you to feel welcome? Because you are welcome. Right? Because I believe the God of the universe says, yes, you're welcome in this place. What you might feel walking into a church sometimes is judgment, condemnation. Man, if these people, oh gosh, I don't agree with all. No, man, that's not where we should be directing our loving call-outs and our desires for people to come and fall in love with Jesus, and that's what we lead with, right? If somebody, this is a rabbit trail, but I'm, I'm doing it because I'm up here and y'all are stuck down there. <clears throat> if somebody is stuck in just sin that's robbing them of their life, right? They don't know Jesus, right? And they are just shackled by, we'll say alcoholism, right? Which, is, which has touched some people in my life and in some really hard ways and dangerous ways, and they're just shackled in this, in this sin of alcoholism and it's robbing their life. My goal, and our goal as a church, is not to look at them and say, hey, stop being alcoholic. That's not what we lead with. That's not our goal. Our goal is not, hey, stop being alcoholic. Our goal is, hey, fall in love with Jesus. That's what we lead with. If somebody's stuck in just this cycle of pornography that's just robbing them of life, right? that's distorting their view of the opposite sex, that's really just robbing them, right? My view is not, hey, don't be a porn addict. Our goal is, hey, fall in love with Jesus. That's what we lead with to the outside world. We say, hey, there's something here better for you. And then, yes, I want them to be set free. 
I want you to be set free. I want me to be set free. I want to walk in the freedom that God allows and paves for us. But we don't lead to outsiders with, stop doing that, stop doing this, you guys do that. We don't judge outsiders. We judge each other lovingly, lovingly, we judge each other in a really general, really cool way, and we'll, we'll explain what it is. So I just, I got to say that, right? If, if we leave here, if we leave here and, and go out in the world and say, yeah, man, we need to start calling people, calling a spade a spade, and that's sin, and that's sin, that's not what we're saying. This is for believers. This is a role of the church, people who profess to be Christians. Let's call each other out in love. So we wrestle with that, right? But here's what happens. So often, we don't receive that. Right, somebody calls me out, I'm going to have a really hard time receiving that for, for some reasons we'll unpack. Right? That, that's something that's maybe not easy to receive. And so we put up walls, maybe. Maybe we bounce. Right? If, there's, if I have a relationship with somebody, and maybe they've done it right, and they really loved me well, and they really you know, were patient and prayerful and just said, hey, Ben, I see something. And all of a sudden, that relationship's like, oh, dang it, man. Like That guy's speaking into my life in a way that's making it really uncomfortable because I don't like that, I don't want to address that, then I'll just bounce, right? There's been a lot of people that either Josh or myself have had to sit down and really love brothers well to say, hey, man, there's a big blind spot in your life. and man, We want you to stay a part of this fellowship, but there's some, there's some things that we see in you that we want you to work on, and we want to set some boundaries to help you grow in the right direction because you got some stuff in your life, and we love you enough to tell you that, right? And it's like, well, forget that church. I'm out of here, man. Those guys don't understand grace, I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere else. And that's one of the, one of the things we run into in, in our culture now, right? Back in Galatia, like the Galatian church, if the Galatian church calls you out and says, hey, man, there's a blind spot, like that's the church. There's not a church on the other corner. You can't just go to the other one or the other denomination. That's it, man. That's the body. It's not the case here. And maybe that's part of how we've allowed ourselves to just kind of pick and choose and only find safe communities, safe families, families that aren't really going to push us or challenge us too hard. Man, that's not... That's not what God designed. So what's happening here is a heart thing. What's happening whenever we put up these walls, right, whenever we put up these walls or we bounce or we, or we shift blame on someone else, what happens when we do that and when we, when we reject someone speaking into our lives, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue that we're going to address tonight. However, if I can nerd out for just a second, right, maybe 60 seconds, there is a biological thing that happens too. Uh, my wife and I are getting discipled by this cool couple uh, and they've really been walking us through some stuff that's really changed our perspective um, on what happens biologically. So let me just be a nerd for just a second, sorry. Um, there's a thing called the amygdala, right? The amygdala in your brain, right, the amygdala, right, is what it's called. The amygdala, some of you guys are nerds, and you're like, oh, he's going to talk about the amygdala, great. Um, I heard like a few people that were like, yes, amygdalas. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so the amygdala in your brain is, a, is kind of the core, uh, the, the central thing where you're going to have emotions and feelings, right? And so there's something called an amygdala hijack. And what happens with the amygdala hijack is, is if some real big emotion hits you, right? Maybe it's traffic. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? Or maybe it's something like a car falls on a kid, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, all your emotions. What happens is you have an amygdala hijack and your amygdala fires. And when it fires, it cuts off it cuts off the front part of your, your cortex, which is where you reason, right? That's where you reason, that's where you're logical, and it just shuts that off. And it's a part of God's awesome, awesome design because what that does is if, is if my son is being mauled by a bear, reason would tell me I'm not gonna win that fight, I'm just gonna go save 
myself, right? That would be the logical reason. And yet the amygdala would be like, screw that. I'm going to go fight that bear, right? Oh, there's a car that fell on somebody. And I would think, well, I logically, I cannot actually lift that car, reasoning, shut that part of the brain off, fight or flight, right? That's how we get fight or flight. Because the amygdala fires, it hijacks it, and what happens is you no longer have access to that part of your brain that reasons. It's really cool how God designed that. Here's what happens. When I eat celery, I love celery. The texture is amazing. When I eat it, I feel healthy. I feel like I'm making a good decision. So I'll drink my beer and I'll eat celery and I'll be like, (laughs) yes, I'm so healthy. Got my craft beer and my celery. Look at how this whole 30 thing's really working for me. Uh, I love celery. When I eat celery on the couch with the love of my life, Danielle Fuquay, incredible woman, incredible, like she's amazing. She loves me really well. When I eat celery on the couch with my wife, trying to watch This Is Us and we're trying to cry and all that stuff, (laughs) her amygdala fires, right? My wife's amygdala fires when I eat celery around her because the sound of me crunching celery constantly literally fires her amygdala. And she just, it's it's the phrase, I just can't, right? That's, That's where that happens, right? The phrase, oh, I just can't, happens when your amygdala fires. Right? And it usually takes, and it's different for different people, but studies would say it's about 18 minutes for that to kind of calm down, right? So when I eat celery, she knows, oh, God, I'm about to fire, right? Like, and we'll, we talk, we're nerds, so we talk like that now, like, oh, man, I think I'm about to fire my amygdala, so I'll be, oh, and, I'll, and then I'll try to, like, chomp quieter, you know, or, like, turn up the TV, you know, because um, I love celery. So that's what happens, right? And it creates this conflict, and so one of the things that happens is, before I knew that, right, before I realized, you know what, that sound brings back crazy grating and I, who knows, right? Maybe she was, you know, maybe a celery truck killed a family member. I don't know exactly. We haven't unpacked the why yet. We don't know the why that fires her, but it does. That sound effect just fires her. And so because of that, it's okay. That's a biological thing that's happening in the woman I love's life. Whereas initially I thought, I feel rejection. Why does my wife, why is she, why is she mean, right? Like, why can't, why does she not want to sit with me? And why, like, why is, right? And so I, I start projecting all of my insecurities because she's really annoyed and she's trying to be sweet, but she's, you know, she's just annoyed and this is us is on and you don't talk and you don't make noise during this is us. And so it's just this, you know, and so I start getting insecure and I'm like, what's the deal? And it, and it becomes conflict because we don't understand part of God's design in that. And that's an easy that's an easy one to fix. We just say, oh, pff, it's the celery. I get it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll eat celery later, you know. <clears throat> that's what happens when we, when we call each other out, though, too, all the time, right? Like, what happens all the time when, when we get called out, when we call someone else out, so often that happens, right? What's going to happen is we're going to lose the ability to reason. So if you've ever been in a fight or been in an argument and it escalates and you're like, man, I don't even know how it got there, it's because you're amygdala fired, Now, that's a biological thing that happens, but it's still revealing a heart thing that's pushing some buttons. It's revealing a heart thing. So I want us to understand the biology and the science and nerd it up with that, and I think that's a tool for us to be able to use as we're loving people and and understanding people and understanding, you know, maybe maybe sometimes, you know, if Danielle and I are in a conflict, we just know, all right, we kind of got to a point where we just need to stop, right? We just need to stop, calm down, because we're not reasoning anymore. A heart thing, though. That's what I want us to talk about. That's where I want us to land. 
two big ideas. One, how do we give this, right? How do we give real truth in love? And then how do we receive it? How do we give it and how do we receive it? So how we give it? Three things when we talk about how we give it. First, we, if we're going to give truth to somebody else, we walk in truth. Colossians 3.16, the verse, the first verse I read, let the word of Christ, this boy Paul starts that sentence. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He says, even before you can teach and admonish and we get into you know, singing psalms, and he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If we want to be a family that really takes advantage of how God's designed family to work and we want to walk with each other in a way that's sanctifying and incredible and will produce fruit in our life because we're pruning each other and we're sharpening each other and all these incredible things that the family of God's designed, if we want to do that, if you want to do that in someone else's life, which you should want to do that, to not want to do that is to miss out on part of God's design for you and, and your sanctification process is to walk in truth. This is not your opinions. This is not your feelings. This is truth. So are you in truth? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not your opinions, not your feelings. Are you someone who has planted your life in truth to where if you see a blind spot in someone else's life, you would have a ground to stand on to say, okay, hey man, this is what I'm seeing and the truth that I'm planted in, I think that's dangerous. I think that attitude, I think that posture, I think that habit, I think it's dangerous, man. Let's go back. Let's look at this. Are you planted in truth? Second, way to give it. Be discerning and prayerful. Be discerning and prayerful if you're going to do this. If you're going to function the way the family's called to, this forgotten function, you have got to be discerning and prayerful. And so what that means is we don't just, we don't just uh, go around and if we see somebody and we're like, oh, that guy that guy, that's got to be sitting right there. And we just call him out and we, and we use this, this tool as a club for other people. And we use this maybe something to make ourselves feel better. Or maybe we just think, okay, it's all black and white to us. And we just go around. It's something that has to be done with discernment and with prayer. And so if we're going to speak truth into each other, make sure that there is discernment and prayer. And then the last, the last part of that is when we give it, we give truth with the posture of Christ. And this is so important. We're not going to have that truth if we're not dwelling in it. Right? We're not going to know where to apply truth if we're not really prayerful and intentional. You know, if you've got someone in your life or you've got friends or roommates or whatever it is and say, Lord, would you, give me, would you give me some encouragement? Would you give me a challenge for this person? But at the end of the day, we've got to give it with the posture that Christ has modeled for us. This beautiful balance between truth and grace. This beautiful, beautiful balance between truth and grace. We don't shy away from truth, but also we make sure we make sure that we're not just leading with truth too. We make sure that when we do, we have a posture because what did, how, did, how, did how did Christ love us? He called his disciples out, but nine times out of 10, he was saying, there's grace, there's grace. I mean, look at the people who he came and invited to do life with him, the tax collectors, and he spent time with prostitutes, and he spent time with fishermen who weren't these holy, righteous people, right? He, he put himself in this world that didn't look like the righteous, self-righteous world of the Pharisees. He put himself in a world of broken, dirty people. And he loved them where they were at. But then he called them gently to something more, to something better. He was, he was gentle. And so be gentle. And remember the amygdala. right? Remember the amygdala if you're going to have this posture of, man, I, I really think the Holy Spirit's put some conviction on my heart. And I, 
I'm gonna pray about it, but I think I wanna talk to this brother. I think I'm gonna talk to the sister in Christ. I think I'm gonna call him out because I, I think I'm hearing that maybe that's my role and I think maybe that's part of, my, part of the role of how the church, and so I'm gonna call him out, but, but man, I, I also wanna be real careful to do that and I'm gonna remember that maybe first glance I bring it up, their amygdala fires and they're irate and they're mad and okay, I'm gonna give it time. I'm gonna circle back around. I'm gonna be gentle with it. Um, and then the last thing in that is that we know that it's a heart issue. It's not a head issue. And so when we're speaking truth into someone's life or they're speaking truth into our life, we know that that's a heart issue. And you know what? We don't have the power to change people's hearts. It's gonna be really dangerous. It's gonna be a really toxic family if we all of a sudden walk out of here thinking we have the power to start changing people's hearts. If our posture walking out of a talk like this is anything other than humility and patience and gentleness, we walk out of here thinking, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start fixing some people. These are heart issues. I think one of my favorite timeless truths is the idea that we're not called to be effective, we're called to be obedient. Because I can't be effective. Right? Like, that's not my role. My role is to be obedient, to say, hey man, I see something here. I've been praying about it, I see something. I wanna put it before you. And I want you to take this to the Lord and see if there's truth to it and, and wrestle with it. I'm called to be obedient. The Lord is what's gonna, is he's the one who's gonna use very possibly your obedience as a seed for, for him changing someone else's heart called to be obedient, not effective. And so how do we receive it then? If that's how we give it, this gentle posture, prayerful, being in the word, how do we receive it? First, we've got a desire to. First, we've got to desire this. I think that's maybe the biggest hang-up, certainly in my life. I don't wake up in the morning saying, man, I sure hope, I don't get up here on stage thinking, man, I can't wait to hear all the things I did wrong in the sermon, all right? Like, we, we don't look for that. We're not eager for that. And maybe there's like a level of masochism there that's like, all right, unhealthy. But do I desire? Do I want to lean in? Do I want to see someone speaking hard things, pointing out blind spots, pointing out issues, pointing out sin in my life? Do I have the right posture to say, I want that? I want that. And that is a hard thing too. Because I think everyone in this room probably when he hears me say that says, okay, sure, intellectually, I recognize I should want that, and so yes, I want that. But is our heart in a posture to really say, yes, teach me, I need, I need to know this. I need, I need God to use other people to call me out in awkward, sinful ways that, that I might have. If this isn't there, if we don't have a desire to receive it, then this thing isn't even getting off the ground. That breaks my heart for you guys. And, and I know I'm gonna look back at my life and look at several relationships and think, man, I just didn't have the right posture to receive that. But it's not gonna get off the ground. You're not gonna be able to receive it until you can, can surrender yourself and, and be able to take that kind of criticism. So then what do you do? If you develop the desire to receive it, right? You say, okay, fine, I'm gonna, I'm gonna want it. Then you identify why you might struggle to receive it. So you identify it. So maybe it's, maybe it's fear, right? Maybe the reason that I don't want someone to speak into my life or the reason that, you know, someone might come and, and they do. They just speak into my life and they tell me something is, is fear. And, and ultimately fear of rejection. Um, my old boss, Tyler, incredible guy, godly guy, he's a pastor here at this church. There have been conversations where he sat me down and he just called me out on stuff. Right, just called me and said, hey Ben, here's where you're supposed to be, kind of as a man, and here's where you are. In a, in a loving, gentle way, right? It wasn't that, he wasn't that big of a D, right? It was, but he was like, hey, here's where you're supposed to be, and, but you, and just calling me out on it. And in those moments, it's hard for me to receive because it's this fear of rejection, of saying, well, 
He's rejecting me. He doesn't think I'm good enough. He doesn't think I'm a man enough. He doesn't think I'm, right, my, my current boss, same thing, on a pretty constant basis. Hey, man, there's a big blind spot here. Hey, there's something you really need to work on. Hey, we're not going to do that, right? Like, that happens all the time. And I have a really hard time because I have this fear of he's rejecting me, right? Or Danielle's kicking me off the couch. During this is us, sacred, because I'm chopping celery. And it's like, I, this feels like rejection. I've got to identify, I've got to identify why that's a struggle. Maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's not fear of rejection, but maybe it's insecurity, right? And, and probably with Danielle, that's more so what it is. Man, when my incredible wife, who God put in my life, who has sharpened me, who is an earthly person that God has used more than anyone else to sharpen me, because she points out things in a really gentle way, when she does that, so often it, it really pushes on this button because it's like, well, wait a second. You're where I find my validation. And if she thinks that I'm not great at this, or if she thinks that this is a problem, or she thinks I need it, well, that's, that's touching my foundation because I've, I've made her this idol in my life, and so all of a sudden it reveals some insecurity. So maybe it's fear, maybe it's insecurity, or maybe it's pride, right? Maybe it's pride in your life. And when, and when someone calls you out on something, you have a really hard time receiving that because you've got pride. And you say, well, who are you? Right? If, you're, if you can think through those, those interactions, and, and if your go-to is, who is that guy to call me out? Right? That happens. That happens. I do that all the time, man. Every once in a while, when one of you guys will give me negative feedback of a sermon, I'm like, who is that guy? Yeah, right. You don't even know what you're talking about, man. You're not even saved, probably. And then I call another church, and I say, hey, I'm going to send a guy to you. He's out of here. Right? If we, dis- right, or... Or we say, man, you're not equipped to know that. Or we just say, look at your sin, right? And we, and we put it back. Man, hypocrisy sucks, but hypocrisy is a horrible excuse to reject truth, right? It's not good. It's really dangerous. It's really polluted the church, but it's a horrible excuse to not receive truth because I can just point out someone else's sin and then I don't ever have to deal with my sin. We are all hypocrites. And so if I have the pride of saying, man, well, that person's a sinner, or that, look at that person's sin. If I disqualify sinners from being able to speak into my life, I'm, I'm never going to be able to have anyone speak into my life. And I'm going to miss out on a function of the church that is designed to make me look more like Christ. I'm going to miss out on the design of the function to help me grow to be a man of God that my God wants me to be. You're going to miss out on that if you don't have a desire to receive it, identify it, and then apply the gospel. Then apply the gospel. You identify what it is of why you have such a hard time, and then you apply the gospel to it. So if it's fear, if, man, I hate receiving that because of the fear of rejection, then we apply the gospel and say, okay, man, our God is good, and he is in control, and his death, burial, and resurrection has put him at the right hand of God, and he has all authority. And so my fear gets refocused from the fear of rejection, from great men in my life, to instead a fear of the Lord that trumps everything. And all of a sudden, now my focus is, all right, I want to, I want to submit to God. And so if there are other people that God's using, all of a sudden, their fear of rejection pales in comparison and washes away because I'm focused on the one person who really matters, the God of the universe who says, what I say matters. And so then I say, okay, Lord, then use these people. Use these people. And if all of them reject me, fine. You're the only one that matters. And all of a sudden, some of that fear is able to kind of fall off. Maybe it's insecurity. Then I remember Ephesians, how I'm told and reminded and challenged to find my identity as a child of God. And if my identity is a child of God and what he says about me from, from choosing me in the womb, 
then all of a sudden the insecurities I have because I find validation in this person and that person and these people liking me, all of a sudden I can take that and I can apply the gospel to that insecurity and say, yeah, I'm still insecure, but for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to remember the gospel and what he says I am and who he says I am to him because of his grace, and I'm going to be able to receive this. I'm going to be able to receive this. I'm going to be able to coast through this insecurity because he is my foundation, not other people validating me. Or maybe it's pride, right? Then I think of the humility of Jesus, and I think about Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if I'm having a hard time receiving truth from a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ because of my pride, then I apply the gospel to it. And I say, okay, look at my Savior. <laughs> look what he was entitled to. He gave up the throne to humble himself to a man to then die on a cross. That was how obedient he was. That was the humility that he had. And I'm worried about looking bad or I'm worried about being called out in some way and my pride being affected. Lord, would you allow my heart to submit to you we apply the gospel to those things. We desire it, we identify it, and we apply the gospel. And I want us to leave uh, tonight with this often forgotten function of the, the church, that we have a love for truth, right? That we crave it, we desire it, we love truth. Because if we don't, we're not going to grow. We're not going to grow, we're not going to look more like him if we just say, you know, I just want a really safe place where nobody calls me out. That's our hope, that's our heart, that is our passion to pursue him. Lord, would, would we look more like you? Lord, would we be more glorifying? So Lord, use the body, use the family of God in our lives to do that. That should be our hope. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for this, God. Thank you for uh, the way you designed the church. God, tonight as we just look at this one function that I, I think we struggle with, that we don't do well, would you, in your Holy Spirit, bring the conviction? Would you show us those areas that um, we need to be able to receive this from other people? Would you show us how to be this kind of a, a ministry, this kind of a body, this kind of a church, a bunch of people who love each other enough, who are constantly applying grace, constantly meeting each other where we're at with grace upon grace upon grace, and then as we pray and as we discern, we're not scared to speak loving truth into each other's lives. God, would you give us the strength and the discernment to do that, to be that kind of a culture, to have hard conversations, to have uncomfortable interactions. Lord, we want to look more like you. We're grateful for how you love us. We're grateful for the grace that you have shown us on the cross of Jesus Christ, how you've accepted us, how you've called us whole, and how you're also calling us to something more. In the name of Jesus. Amen.